millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're having an anniversary. We are talking about 40 years ago. The year is 1979, and everybody is going crazy for a particular movie, a movie that has echoed down the years. We're over... Well, nearly, rather, over 40 years, we've had sequels to this film. There are spin-off comics, there are toys, there are models, there are books written about this one particular film. This time round, we are talking about the film Alien. You've been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty good place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, but always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. So if we're talking about Alien, that means we're going to be going back about 80 years, where we'll be talking about a form of protective clothing. We'll be going back nearly 100 years to be talking a bit about a, a genre or a type of film that's been going on for as I said, nearly 100 years. And we're going to be talking about other really important influences to this movie that go back hundreds of millions of years. So if you have not seen the film Alien, well, first of all, there's going to be spoilers in this, but you have had 40 years to see it. But you might be listening to this and you, you might not be old enough to see this film. But don't worry. 
I won't be giving away too much about the ending of the film. I will be talking about the principal star of the movie, which is the alien, also known as the xenomorph. And I won't be getting particularly sort of graphic with any sort of gory, nasty stuff. Uh, let's face it, that's all imagery anyway. So what I wanted to at least start with is the influences of this film, because it certainly wasn't born in a vacuum. Really, what it is, is it's that classic haunted house movie set in space. You know, the haunted house film where a bunch of people go to a haunted house and then they're hunted down one by one and killed. And if we're looking at that as an overall concept, you might think, oh, you know, that probably that probably started popping up in something like the 1950s, you know, the drive-in movies, the, the start of sort of horror films. But but no, no, horror films have been around for a very long time. Our fascination with the vulnerability of humans predates cinema, for starters. The idea of our frailty and us being hunted, that's a very primal fear. But if we're going to go into the basic construct of that kind of remote mansion and here we are going to hunt somebody down, you know, there's a killer in the house kind of thing, then the, the first film that uses that basic structure is a silent movie from 1926 called The Bat. And it has the basic premise. We're talking about a remote, large house. We're talking about a masked killer in this case, sort of tracking down some people in a house. Let's fast forward to the world of sound, shall we? And we get the spiral staircase. That's from 1946. And what we have here is a woman who is trying to avoid being killed, again, in a remote location, uh, sort of like an old rundown mansion. And this film the Spiral Staircase, has some examples of early jump scares. What's a jump scare? Well, it could be literally the killer jumping out at somebody, but it's quite often now the, the fake out where somebody's walking down a, a, a gloomy corridor and there's some tense mu music and your body and everything is priming you for something bad's going to happen. Then suddenly a cat jumps out and you ah! and uh, that's uh, that's fine. You know, it, 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 it sort of gives you that little adrenaline jolt. So sometimes it can be the, the fake out jump scare like, oh, it's only a cat. And let's face it, cats are convenient in terms of jumping out and making loud noises. Um, or it could be literally the killer jumping out with a with a knife. Then we've got to go, I guess, to the, the granddaddy of, of these sort of um, bloody type films which is, well, I say granddaddy, although it's sort of like nearly 40 years older than the uh, than the bat, but we've got the, the most famous one, Psycho. Okay, that came out in 1960 and it drove the censors wild. Uh, obviously, there's the very famous shower scene in that. It has edit after edit. It's just a masterclass in how to edit things. People still to this day swear that they see the knife going into the woman in the shower. And it's like, no, no, that never happened. It's all very carefully edited between knife swings and a woman shrieking. Um, but no, at no point is there any actual physical violence there. And of course, quite famously filmed in black and white. And the blood that's going into the shower is actually chocolate syrup. So, um, yes. And interestingly, the most shocking thing for the censors in that scene 
up there with the violence was it's the first ever scene in American cinema to show <gasps> a flushing toilet. Yeah, they were about as worried about that as the actual murder in a shower. Make of that what you will. But then, if you like, we go into the golden era of the slasher film, which is in the late 70s and it's certainly into the 1980s. And the touch point of that is John Carpenter's Halloween that came out in 1978. Now, we can't say, even though it came out a year before Alien, we can't say that Halloween really, really influenced Alien because Alien was filmed in the summer and early autumn of 1978. But there's some interesting DNA between Halloween and Alien. Because one of the writers of, the main writer of Alien is a guy called Dan O'Bannon. And back in the early 70s, Dan had a friend called John Carpenter. And they created a very low-budget sci-fi movie called Dark Star. Dark Star is a triumph of ideas over budget. I've seen it. I, it's one of these films where, yes, it's important in the conversation, but is it really a good Saturday evening viewing? Probably not, but it's brimming with ideas. Uh, you know, quite, quite sort of famously, uh, it, it really, it's all shot just really in mainly one, one location. Um, it is clearly done on a budget of about $2.50 and a packet of gum. And But, it, but yeah, the, the writing's really clever in it. For example, uh, they're about to fire sort of uh, weapons with AI on them. And nowadays we've got like smart bombs. We even use that term, smart bombs, you know, laser guided missiles, things like that. So it was, you know, quite a clever idea in the early 70s. But if you make the weapons too smart, they might start arguing with you about being fired and ultimately destroyed. So that's quite a clever idea. But also in Dark Star, a little alien comes on board. Now, the alien itself is, is basically a sprayed beach ball. As I said, low budget. And it's there very much for comedy. The, the Dark Star is basically a sort of surrealist, slightly dark comedy rather than anything else. But Dan O'Bannon, who worked on Dark Star, thought, well, maybe if we... I like this idea of an alien coming onto a, a spaceship. And really, a spaceship is the most remote house you can get. So why don't I turn that into a, a completely different plot where I amp it up. I make it an actual proper horror movie. And I shall call that film Star Beast which everybody hated and said, well, you keep using the word alien in the uh, in the actual script. Why don't we stop calling it Star Beast and start calling it Alien? And that's quite nice because Alien is both a noun and an adjective, and they really pushed the boat out on making this creature very different to human beings. So I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep going with the, the film history for the time being. Don't worry, we'll get into some natural history in a little bit. But it is worth now talking about that horrible orphan part of the film genre for nearly 100 years, which was science fiction. Now, interestingly, you get things like H.G. Wells and, you know, you get the Lumiere brothers with the, you know, the sort of the trip to, to the moon and things like that. So very, very early 
stories, you know, way, way before something like computer generated special effects and things like that. You know, human beings have always had a fascination with what's out there. And, and therefore, there's always been elements of science fiction in movies, in so many movies. It, it's not something that started with Star Wars, for example. But there can be no doubt that it was very much the poor cousin. When it came to Oscar time in argument's sake, 1955, there was no science fiction films being considered. You, you know, they just weren't very worthy. It's a bit like the evolution of the Western. They, they also started, you know, there were Western films at the very beginning of cinema, but they were very much seen as the lazy ones, the ones that John Wayne did. They were very popular in the cinema, but they weren't necessarily the place you'd go to see the great acting, the, you know, groundbreaking scripts. And yet now we tend to think a lot of those films are genuinely amazing sort of Westerns from the 1950s or 60s. And it was the same kind of thing with science fiction, partly because, let's be honest, if you watch a, a science fiction film from the 1950s, most of them are complete garbage. Uh, they, you know, they don't have the best actors. They don't have the, the budgets, for example. Uh, they were done on the cheap. And so invariably you got somebody in, in a big rubber outfit and uh, it, there's no convincingness to this whatsoever. And yeah. They were kind of an embarrassment. That's not to say that there was zero good science fiction out there, but it was very, very rare. And it was also very, very rarely a hit. I've already done a Neon on 2001 A Space Odyssey. That came out in 1968. So that's, you know, 50 odd years old now. And that was groundbreaking because to this day, it does pretty much hold up. I'm not saying it's it its special effects are perfect, but it still looks pretty good. But it wasn't, as I said at the time, it wasn't an instant hit. Um, I, I guess it's unfair to say that because generally opening weekends weren't nearly as important in the 60s, 70s or 80s as they are now. But even so, it took a while for... 2001 A Space Odyssey to gain some momentum and, and make its money back, which is ultimately what people want in terms of films. And it is worth pointing out that, yeah, it didn't lead to a huge slew of, of science fiction movies coming out. However, round about the same time, we do get the first big science fiction franchise, and that is the Planet of the Apes movies. But are they exactly what we mean by science fiction. I mean, there can be no doubt at the beginning of the original Planet of the Apes, we have a spaceship and it crash lands. And so somebody had to build a set of a spaceship and stuff like that. And clearly the whole thing is, is this kind of futuristic fantasy. It is a science fiction in its literal sense. And the makeup still looks pretty good to this day. I would, I would argue about that um, in the original one. But I guess you could argue that over a period of time, it's got more in common with the likes of Lord of the Rings. It's more fan fantasy rather than hard science fiction. There aren't spaceships flying around in every one. Uh, people aren't using laser guns and, you know, teleporters aren't a thing. You know, so if you like all the tropes of science fiction, robots, etc., they're just not there. It's just we happened to be... Oh, here we are, coming up with a spoiler for Planet of the Apes. It's just we happen to be on a planet Earth in the future. Sorry about that for a, a spoiler. 
spoiler, but I did warn you. I did warn you about the spoiler. And again, you've had about 50 years to see that film. Uh, so, yes, by the time we get to the late 1970s, really in terms of proof of concept, we've got Planet of the Apes movies, which by then had become farcical. They're, they're, I mean, still huge hits, still putting bums on seats, selling those tickets. That's important. But we got to the point where some of the apes had somehow got to 1970s America. And uh, yeah, just, oh, yeah, the Planet of the Apes sequels, it, it isn't just recently where we've got lazy with sequels. We've always been a bit lazy with sequels. And I would actually argue nowadays with franchises, for example, things like the, the Marvel Universe um, or things like the Toy Story movies even, you know, people really are putting a lot of effort into sequels, uh, whereas they used to just be much more cynical cash grabs. So there we go. So that that's taking us into the late 70s. And then, of course, there was this little film, and I've already done a podcast on this one, called Star Wars that came out in 1977. And it was weirdly Star Wars that helped Alien being made, because Alien was greenlit in 1978, when they'd seen, finally, that you could get a big hit on your hands with science fiction. Science fiction just simply wasn't seen as a surefire bet, as it it's more so today. But look, let's be honest, even in, you know, in the 21st century, even with our all modern technology, even when sometimes things can look like a surefire hit, things can misfire. One of the most lauded manga properties ever is Ghost in the Shell, hugely influential. You wouldn't have had The Matrix without Ghost in the Shell. It was turned into a live action movie. It was turned into a really good, very good looking, you know, huge attention to detail movie starring Scarlett Johansson, a, a you know, major player in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it didn't do very well at the box office. So there's an example of some sci-fi that should have worked and flopped. Okay, then Mortal Engines, the blink and you miss it Christmas release of 2018 about big giant cities on wheels going around things. I quite liked it. I thought the final act was very derivative, but up until that point, I was enjoying myself. Big, big flop. Huge loss. John Carter from Mar uh, uh, on Mars. That was such a huge flop that, uh, that that's estimated to have lost more than $200 million. If you're sitting there going, who, what, where, whatever, it, it was actually from... A very well-respected science fiction series about a man from the American Civil War who ends up being transported to Mars and gets involved in these in this sort of great alien uprising. It was an influence uh, of of Star Wars to to an extent, the John Carter series, uh, and also a little bit like Flash Gordon as well. But um, it was such a huge flop that Disney thought, well, do you know what? We we need to actually buy a surefire science fiction property, and that's what led to them buying Star Wars. So, so yeah, so, I mean, there have been some very notable flops, and even in the worlds of, of Star Wars, you get something like Solo, which nobody asked for, nobody was really excited about. It had only come out six months after the highly divisive Last Jedi, and even a Star Wars movie can flop as well. So, yeah, while that did end up sort of like uh, grossing about $400 million, the production budget on that was probably about 300 because they ended up having to reshoot a lot of it. And, you know, the, the studios don't get all the money of the gross. They only get that best half of it. So that didn't even cover its costs. The first Star Wars flop. There we are. Um, so all of this is flowing around. But because science fiction was starting to look like, OK, we've now kind of got the technology to make it look good and also... 
you know, we've just had a, you know, a monster hit with Star Wars. Okay, okay, guys, you can go and make this movie, which was called Star Beast, but we'll now call it Alien because that seems a bit better. And so it was made. Now, Dan O'Bannon, who was the guy, as I said, who wrote the script and had worked with John Carpenter on Dark Star, kind of thought he might end up directing it, but it ended up going to this Brit and it ended up being filmed in Britain. This guy called Ridley Scott, who had only made one film before, The Duelist, but had also made a lot of TV commercials. And my God, uh, Ridley Scott has an eye for beautiful imagery. Not all of his films are classics, but all of his films look great. Okay, there's no doubt about that. However, we are still talking about 1970s technology, and they were desperate to not have this look like Forbidden Planet or any of the huge quantity of B-movie monsters out there. It all hung on the monster. And so what they did is they were decided to go into an area that had never been done before. If you look at something like the 1960s Star Trek series, the, the, uh, the monsters generally are guys in, in, in rubber suits or basically in some variation of a, of a gorilla suit, which they might have literally dyed a different colour and stuck some horns on. That's an actual suit, by the way, in one of the Star Trek episodes. Don't believe me? Have a look. Uh, or the Gorn, which... You know what they were going for, but with 1960s technology, it just looks like a guy in the in a rubber suit. So they went to a Swiss artist who had been wor working for about 10 years called H.R. Geiger. And Geiger was a visionary. Not a very nice visionary, but a visionary nonetheless. He was fascinated with biomechanical imagery. What's that? Well, for starters, it's just simply the alien. But it's this idea of fusing things like tubes and wires and pistons with organic imagery. There's one called the birth machine, which is basically a side cutaway of an automatic gun. Only the bullets seem to be little biomechanical babies. So in other words, when that gun fires, the baby will come out and I guess it's born. That's how weird he is. He has loads of ones called landscapes, like Landscape 5, Landscape 10, all this kind of stuff. And what the landscapes generally are, are, are pictures of babies, but with tubes coming out of their noses or pustules on their foreheads and just like loads of them as like a, almost like a wall of baby faces, but horribly grotesque. And there's something, something off about each and every one of them. And if you're sitting there going, Ugh. That's the point. I find it fascinating that um, babies, for example, they've done... Uh, psychologists are fascinating, twisted people, okay? But we need them to find out about humanity and what it means to be human. And it's fascinating. You show a picture of a sort of snarling dog at a young child and there's no reaction. You put a bit of perspex over an image of like a chasm and the baby will crawl over that. Babies are rubbish and don't understand, you know, danger, basically. And if I showed you certain imagery in some countries, that will create a visceral reaction. It won't give you the same visceral reaction in other countries. But the one thing that is universal is revulsion. 
Revulsion is a human response to not wanting to get infection. You show a picture of somebody with a face and they got boils on it or, you know, maybe even just makeup or something like that. It doesn't matter if we're talking about a two-year-old child in China or we're talking about a grown man in Canada. The point is if you see a picture of like a, a pool of maggots or slime or something like that, it is a fundamental human reaction. Say, get away from that. You're, it, it could give you something that could harm your body. And that revulsion was something that Geiger was able to tap into. This whole sort of mixture of mechanical and, and biological shouldn't fit together that it's it's an abomination and that kind of slight unease around it is really important because that that's exactly what they wanted to go for with the alien they didn't want it to be a sort of rubber chimpanzee suit type, type thing they wanted it to look genuinely different and unusual and initially they wanted to go with something animatronic to make it look even look in a, in a sort of put it into shapes that no human could possibly do but they the end they, they, there was the technology for that but in in the end they managed to get a very very tall he was over seven foot tall and very skinny guy called Balaji Badejo uh, and he had to do to like Tai Chi and things like that to learn how to move slower in the suit actually being in the suit was a nightmare when he had the full suit on including the head he couldn't see anything he couldn't sit down properly in the suit and so he had to be sort of put on something like a swing uh, just to sort of um, uh, allow him to uh, sort of have some relaxation as it were but it's interesting that, that as soon as you see this, if you see Necronum 4, that was H.R. Geiger's first alien. But it was created in 1976. But when uh, Ridley Scott and the production team saw that, they went, that's our alien. What's interesting in that picture is it has eyes. And Geiger was insistent to remove the eyes because... He wanted it to be sort of like, how is it hunting? Is it through scent? You know, can you cover your scent? You can hide behind a box, but I, you know, if my smell's good enough, maybe I can find you there. It's kind of unclear about how the alien is, is aware of its surroundings, but it's very aware of how to hunt its prey. But this is where, so I said nearly 100 years ago, and I've talked to you about the concept of, if you like, the horror movie, starting with the 1926 film The Bat. But let's go back 80 years, because the original alien, now it's interesting, they changed this in Aliens, but the original alien has that incredibly smooth, domed head. And there's a very deliberate reason for this, because that's mirroring that strangely smooth ridge of a Nazi German infantry helmet from World War II. So what's worse than aliens? How about aliens that are space Nazis? That's never in any way sort of uh, overtly said. But what Geiger is trying to do is tap into as many things that we find uncomfortable and, and weird and things like that. And of course, the other thing that we have to put into here and this is where we go back hundreds of millions of years, is the alien's reproductive cycle. Now, it's, it's interesting. They hadn't quite nailed it in the first movie because there's a scene that was deleted but has been subsequently put into DVD releases, but it was not in the original cinematic release 
of um, as uh, Ripley is sort of trying to get out of the ship, uh, she actually comes across Dallas, who's sort of been half cocooned. Now they again they revisit this in Aliens. Uh, but that scene was taken out and, and there was still debate uh, while they were filming it. It's like, is he being turned into an alien? Is he being turned into like an egg sack? Is he just there as like food for the alien? But yes, yeah, so, so the, you know, they hadn't quite nailed it. But the basic system, which you do see in the movie, is there is this egg. And the egg opens up and this parasitic organism jumps out and clamps itself onto the face of somebody who looks into the egg, subsequently referred to as a face hugger, because that's exactly what it does. And that face hugger puts a, a tube down the victim's throat and implants an embryo into the inside the person. And either several hours or several days later, that embryo grows and eventually ruptures out, bursts out of the, of the host. And you then have what's referred to as a chest burster. And that scene, by the way, one take. And the crew were not let into exactly what was going to happen with John Hurt. So that look of genuine surprise on their face is real. No acting required. Um, and, you know, it is a great moment of cinema history there. That, you know, it's a great... And, and it's this idea of body horror, which, yes, I'm aware that there have been other people who've sort of rolled with the body horror thing. But, you know, if, if you've got a sort of a cancer, an organism, a parasite inside you, well, how do you get it out of you? It is worth reminding you that the alien has acid for blood. That was a deliberate choice because then when they were writing the script, they kept coming back to, so why don't they just shoot it? Why don't they just shoot it? I mean, you know, it's space. They must have space guns. Why don't they, you know, even if it's a civilian vessel, they probably have some guns, and you know, just in case they land on a harsh environment. Why would they not have any weapons whatsoever? Why won't they shoot this thing? Oh, what happens if it's full of concentrated sulfuric acid, in which case, you know, that would be really bad for a spaceship and the person shooting it. So they that's it was for for reasons in inverted commas for the the point of screenwriting that it ended up happening that way. But yes, yeah, so you, you you know you can't cut it off. You you um, you might not even be aware, as in the first film, you're not even aware that you, you're carrying this parasite. And yeah, it's it's its birth will kill you, which is pretty much the definition of a horrible parasite. Then it grows suspiciously fast to be honest you know first of all it starts off i guess the same size as a small cat and very quickly it seems to be the size of a sort of seven foot tall humanoid uh which is a little bit weird and and that's as far as we go in the original movie uh but obviously what lays the eggs and so on and so forth that's all answered in the second movie aliens maybe i'll end up doing a I don't want to go too much into that because, first of all, it's not the same film. Uh, secondly, it's a very different film. And thirdly, maybe there's some juice in there for Jim to do another podcast on it. Who knows? Uh, now, while I'm actually on that, yes, yes, sneaking it in to the middle of the podcast on this time, it's worth pointing out that we're going to be doing something a bit different on Patreon. If you like... Uh, if you like the podcast, but you don't like hearing the adverts uh, and plugs and things like that, then uh, then go to Patreon 
Uh, and, you know, look, you can sign up to Patreon for just a, a dollar a month. It really isn't a lot of money, but it, you'll be able to hear the, the entire back catalogue, but also all the adverts will be stripped out. So if you want it a bit leaner and meaner, you just want to get to the good juicy meat, or if you're vegetarian, the delicious nut roast of, uh, of Neon, then then please join us on Patreon. Um, that's an example of one of the innovations we're doing in 2019. But here is the really disgusting thing. If you are right now eating, you might just want to stop for five minutes because here is the, here is the truly disgusting thing. The alien itself sounds completely alien. Clearly, that's not how humans biologically uh, interact. But weirdly, there are animals out there that have rather similar life cycles to the alien. And there is this kind of slight reproductive horror to all this. The, the trauma of obviously the chest burster coming out. You don't have to be a genius to say that. I guess there's echoes of that and, and sort of like human birth. Human birth is hard work. It's called labor for a reason. And uh, here's some interesting sort of background bits to it. So the tendons on the side of the alien's jaws are actually shredded condoms. And the sort of the gloopy sort of drool coming out of its mouth is KY jelly. So there's so there are even sort of like nods to sort of human reproduction. And, and you know, there, there is, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just going to get deep here for a moment. But, you, you know, birth... Fertility is a powerful thing in hu in humans. You know, most women, when they're in their teenage years, the last thing they want to do is fall pregnant. There is a fear of of reproduction in in young women, and quite right too, because all they have to do is watch one video of what it's like to actually give birth and go, I'm not sure I want to be going through that. Now, let's not be let's be sure about this. I don't want to stop the next generation of humans being born at some point. You know, at the right time in your life with the right partner, it can be a beautiful, uh, fulfilling experience experience becoming a parent. I, I know I have two children, but watching the process of, of the children being born, uh, you know, it, that has to be the hardest work a human being could ever possibly go through. And indeed, you being born, if you've listened to this, that's the one thing we've all got in common. We were all born. You being born is the most stressful thing that will ever happen in your life. People have measured the heart rates and the adrenaline going through uh, a newborn baby. And um, it, it, if that happened to an adult, it would kill you. But it's this sheer will of wanting to be, become that uh, is so vital. And if you like that, the more visceral... You know, there's the smart Alec comment about, you know, birth is a miracle. Well, it's the most disgusting miracle I've ever seen. Um, yeah, sort of. But do you know what? There are creatures out there that are even grosser than human beings, okay? So, and I, look, I won't be able to hear you, but I demand a round of applause for some of these. So first of all, there's an entire uh, species or, or genus, I should say, of wasp called the parasitoid wasps. And what they are, these are probably, you could argue, the closest to the alien because for starters wasps and, and the idea was to make the alien look insectoid like and wasps are obviously you know in the realms of, of, of in, in insects aren't they they are exoskeleton that means they're skeletons on the outside with juicy bits on the middle whereas we are endoskeletons we have our skeletons inside of us hard bits in the middle soft bits outside so um what's the these wasps there are loads of them scarily 
and they they basically that each wasp is specific to a prey and what they will do is the females and some of these females can be like three inches long you know that's something like seven eight centimeters that's the body then we have to add spindly legs and things like that it's already sounding pretty disgusting isn't it they will basically and you know again each one kind of it does vary but basically they'll they will inject their young into a host like a beetle something like that on one occasion i saw it with a slug um oh sorry snail i should say and and with the snail obviously un unlike the beetle but with the snail you could actually see this lava pulsating inside the snail it was utterly disgusting and um obviously it, whatever host it's in it basically you know, it's now got instant food so this this wasp larvae will sort of like eat its way out of this other creature and the other creature starts acting in a weird way remember that thing i said about disgust quite often its own species will avoid it it recognizes it's there's something off here best to stay away from it um, something instinctive and so and then eventually the wasp larvae will erupt from the host doesn't this sound familiar? And then um, it will actually then basically, because it's got the advantage of already eat, you know, having eaten and things like that, it will actually burst out and, and, and off we go. Then, and really, please, uh, a round of applause for this one. Uh, I, I, the, the third one's going to be hardest. Uh, Simothoa exigua. Yeah. Uh, let's get, call it by its more common name, the tongue-eating tongue louse. This is a common occurrence in in the in the waters of the world, in the oceans and seas of planet Earth. There are these lice, and some of them can be quite large. And what they do is they they're a more benign and utterly weird um, parasite, because what they do is they swim into the mouth of larger fish, and eat the tongue of the fish and then latch onto the hole that exists, they'll actually end up um, getting the blood circulation of the fish into this louse. It becomes inextricably linked to the fish. But apart from eating its tongue, it, there is no ill effects. Fishermen have, have found on many occasions opening up the mouth of like a large grouper or something like that. And there's this there's this louse just sitting there in the fish's mouth, sort of like wriggling away. It's, uh, you know, and, and the I guess what, well, A, the fish can't do anything about it. But clearly the fish has continued to grow and thrive. It hasn't, it's in no way killed its host in this situation. I mean, that's a bit weird. Your entire life sitting in something else's mouth. Now, it's easy living because, of course, all the nutrients and stuff. But, of course, all those nutrients have to go past you as well. Um, yeah, probably not the best career decision ever. But if we are talking about sort of like now uh, insect, crustacea type things uh, dealing with fish, we, you know, the, the evolution of this would have been hundreds of millions of years ago, way, way before there were even mammals, probably even before there were even land-based um uh, land-based animals. But then we come to... <laughs> Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to give myself a round of applause for, for, for saying that first time round without an um in the middle of it. Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Thank you very much. <laughs> What's that? Well, it's even more disgusting, people. This is a fungus that actually preys on living creatures. Now, this specific fungus actually preys on ants. It basically gets through the mandibles. It has to be able to break through the hard exterior. And it's, as, it's, as it spores, it's not going to be able to go through the, the hard hide of an ant. Instead, it goes through its mouth, its mandibles. And once inside, it starts growing. It's, it's, a, it's a quite, well, no, not quite literally, but it's almost the same thing as a bacterial infection. You now have, in essence, a plant taking over a, 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 a walking, breathing, uh, you know, animated, vaguely sentient uh, creature. How weird is that? The plants are getting in on the action. And what's fascinating about this particular uh, species is, again, like the, the wasp ones, is these, um, these ants start acting funny strangely and the the fungus somehow manages to get this um get this ant to when it eventually shuts down and dies to be in a place where there is light so it'll be able to to continue to grow and obviously the spores burst out and spread um and there are again there are several different types of this but you know some of them literally you'll you'll see an ant that's utterly stock still covered in what kind of looks like cobwebs but it's sort of like the uh, the roots of this uh, uh the, this um 
this plant, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, I know funguses themselves. So there are some which are actually less fungus and more plant like I, you know, I'm not an expert on this, um, but like literally with leaves coming out of it, little, little like branches, tiny little branches coming out the head of the ant, you know, but the ant is now dead and is just a husk, which is now full of this sort of parasitic uh, or not organism, but, but plant life, uh, you know, it just shows you that if you like, if there is something that anything living has in common it's the need to breed now most of us we actually you know uh, most animals breed by finding a mate and being able to pass their dna onto each other but yeah there are these horrific parasitic creatures out there that are just needing to sort of like have a host to interact with isn't that disgusting but yeah, I mean, if you did find that a little bit uncomfortable to, to listen to, first of all, I apologize. That's not my, my uh, point, point of this podcast, but absolutely pointing out that it shows you that they really spent their time to create a creature. You know, wh why aren't some creatures remembered better than than others? And sometimes it's because they've got personality like Wookiees, which let's face it, that that is very old fat you know when you look at wookies do you remember i said about you know strategically shaved or colored you know gorilla outfits nah, wookies not far off that really it's it's in the old school of science fiction creatures rather than new school but hey chewbacca's got personality so he's a famous alien and then you've got something like you know the alien the xenomorph which displays so many things we fundamentally have an issue with you know reproduction parasitic invasion the nazis um you know and obviously the fact this thing kills things as well it's a hunter it's a predator all these things uh you put together means that it is a terrifying uh, force of nature that these civilians and that's what's really important in alien uh, unlike in aliens where they're uh, where they're um you know, they're soldiers and they have lots of whip weapons and combat experience as well. These are civilian, in essence, truckers. You know, they are just taking supplies from A to B. They don't really have a lot of skills. And so when, you know, they have to cobble together some weapons, they're hunting, hunted down mercilessly one after another. It makes it a wonderful, terrifying experience. Now, I'm of the generation I've only ever seen Alien on, you know, video or uh, DVD. But in, in I do know that in 2019, cinemas are releasing it in the cinemas and i would encourage you to go and have a look if you can stomach it as it were i mean it's not that it's particularly gory but i mean it's a scary film a very scary film and therefore seeing it on the big screen even when you know the jump cuts are coming up i bet that's one hell of a cinematic experience so there you go there's neon's take on alien the movie taking us into the world of art, into the history of cinema, into some fundamental human phobias and fears, and how some disgusting creatures have been reproducing for millions of years. Mm, isn't that a nice thought? Sweet dreams, everybody. But if you want to keep the conversation going, as always, we've had some great interactions recently, both on the Twitter account and Facebook account. Those are both Neon Podcast. We have the website, that's uh, neonpodcast.com. And as I've already mentioned, the, the Patreon page. Please, please do support us on Patreon. You know, it, the, the minimum uh, commitment is a, a dollar a month. That really isn't a lot, a lot of money. That's uh, uh, patreon.com forward slash neon podcast. Um, but, you know, look, if you've got no money, uh, then whatever podcast app you're listening to it on, 
on, please give us a review. It all helps spread the word and help us with the neon revolution. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 